This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Story about something we have grown, I think, sadly accustomed to in a sense, and that is a famous person misbehaving. We've had Bill Cosby, we've had Gian Gomeshi, we've had Donald Trump, we've had lots and lots and lots. We now have Harvey Weinstein. Now, when I say it's a strange story, strange because A, a lot of people didn't necessarily know him by name right off the bat, but B, a lot of people who you would think would be jumping all over a story like this because they generally do have been kind of silent as well, which makes this a little bit unusual. But here to chat a little bit about this story because it is becoming a little too commonplace, it seems. Uh, Lenore Lukasik-Foss, uh, the Director of the Sexual Assault Center of Hamilton and Area. She joins me now. Lenore, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, it's great to be here. Uh, are you at all surprised when you hear a story like Ooh. this now? Um, no, I'm not. I, I wish I was. I mean, I think every all of these stories are horrible, and I, I hope that I'm still, I, I hope that I still have shock because I don't want to be ever so used to this. But in in some ways, I'm not surprised because we know how common these kinds of, you know, ongoing years-long predatory behavior that is kind of the open secret in a particular um, workplace or sector. So, and and particularly, we you know, we know all those jokes about Hollywood and casting call beds or whatever, horrible things that are covering up sexual assault. Um, it's more than misbehavior. In fact, what's what's been um, talked about is actual rape and mm-hmm. sexual assault in this situation. Well, and and seemingly growing. I mean, it started out as again. I won't. I, I, you're right. I won't use the word misbehavior. It mm-hmm. started out as improper advances. Mm-hmm. Uh, the New Yorker that was in the New York Times. Yes. The New Yorker then reported today that three women have said he raped them. Yes. Yes. And I now, uh, in the last, I don't know, hour or two, a New York Times story has come out saying Gwyneth Paltrow and Angelina Jolie now are coming yes. out saying he was improper with them. But th- this is this is part of why I am finding this, I guess, a little surprising. Yeah. Only in the sense it seems as though, and we're hearing this phrase a lot now, that this was kind of an open secret. Yeah. In Hollywood, and I don't understand if it was such an open secret how was able to go on for this long because he was a very powerful man. I understand that, but many of the other people involved were also very powerful. Yeah. I think, you know, of course I'm trying to wrap the head, my head around this, not being, you know, someone who has expertise around Hollywood or cult, that culture. But certainly what I understand is a lot of the folks where this, uh, women, so I need to be really clear, like this, he, he was specifically targeted women uh, for sexual harassment and assault, um, you know, were either at early in their career or quite young or um, had heard tales of other actresses who had spoken up and then all of a sudden their careers became incredibly muted and they couldn't help but wonder if this mm. had to do with this person's behavior. And so... Um, it, it, or sort of ret- retribution behaviors. And so I think, you know, when we see someone who's so incredibly connected that I understand um, Mr. Weinstein is, and so powerful and holds so many doors to opportunity within th- that community that they can make, um, you know, make or break your living. And so I think uh, we see that we see some of his employees who had a sense that this this was bad and this was going on. Um, and were in fact being even used to make the women 
more likely to show up so that a female assistant would initially be brought into meetings so that the women would feel safe and then have to leave. You know, so you see that his employees who had massive confidentiality uh, clauses in their contracts, you know, really struggling morally now about why they kept quiet for so long. And on one hand, I, I have to say, although in retrospect, we would say, why didn't you come forward? There's a part of me that also says, you know, if I hear a rumor about a friend of mine and I don't have any actual information to back it up, yeah, maybe, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I, it was if my best friend or someone I'm very close to, I hear they did something wrong, I might ask them, but if they say no, I, I would feel very awkward and very out of place to suddenly report them for something if I don't know that there's anything to it. It well, becomes an awkward situation to be I, in. I understand what you're saying, but I think in this instance it was not necessarily, because we're not actually even um, initially talking about reporting, although there, there were a structure of, you know, human resource department, the board. There was a place that perhaps he could have been held accountable as he ultimately has now with his job being taken. Um, but this is about people, uh, you know, ongoing patterns of behavior and seeing things and knowing things. And in fact, like I said, it was very well known, apparently, amongst um, that world that this is what this guy was like. And, and, you know, actresses had heard rumors about him and about needing to be careful. And what I'm finding also interesting in this case that we're now seeing some of the women coming forward who I, I just commend them for, for doing that and speaking publicly because I, I, the risk is still there, you know, that they, uh, you know, ended up afterwards staying in contact with him or still going out for a drink. And we see these kinds of things happen in other kinds of sexual assault cases where people are always baffled and say, well, why did these victims, you know, it couldn't have been assault because then the person, you know, was nice to them. And we saw this in the Gian Gameshi case, like, you know, it, 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 he ultimately was acquitted. You know, that th- th- these behaviors mean that assault didn't happen when that, we're, we're seeing that play out again in the situation that survivors will often try to make sense and try to uh, have to sometimes play nice with the person who is in a very powerful position. Well, Laura, I got to be honest, part of the reason I wanted you on today, because there is an interesting part of this story that I actually find uh, there are a lot of troubling things in the story, let's be honest, but there's one thing in particular that strikes me as as troubling. And that is when, when Donald Trump, when those tapes came out about Donald Trump and the things he said, he was, I think, appropriately ripped by people on social media, by people in Hollywood, by other celebrities. When, um... Anthony Weiner, the, uh, yes, the, the New York um, yeah. politician, was caught sexting young girls. Yeah. He was appropriately ripped by people. But what we see in this are the people who are doing the ripping are often people who are political enemies rather than the people who are your friends. And in this particular case, we yeah. see... Uh, Harvey Weinstein was a very powerful Hollywood guy. Now, there are some people in Hollywood who are speaking up, but it yes. took an entire weekend of basically being called out for people saying, where are you? Yeah. Why yes. are you not, are saying, you not anything? saying anything? Yes. And yeah. they are finally relenting a bit. And what I, the part I find troubling, it's a long way of getting to it, is it seems that for a lot of this now, sexual assault has become politicized, that it's not so bad if it's our guy, because there's probably an explanation, but if it's your guy, he's an evil, evil person who's done this. And if it gets into, you're going to gauge this on how bad it is based on which political party they are affiliated with, That's that to me is as troubling as anything in this. Oh, uh, you know, that, <clears throat> excuse me, Scott, that's um, really scary to ponder, because assault happens, we know assault happens in all levels of power. We know that sexual assault 
um, violence against women, workplace sexual harassment, which we're seeing elements of this in, in this case, happens in all areas, in all levels of power, you know, from, you know, small business right up to, you know, a Hollywood mogul. Um, you know, and the fact that that folks will only sanction it if it or, or only come out against it if if it's someone that they have a beef with already politically or socially or culturally, whatever, you know, to, to make a particular point, it's really frightening because we know it's wrong. No matter who is doing it, it is wrong. And I think that it's the fact that we're not seeing folks speak up is really sad to, for me, that, that folks who were aware of this behavior or her, who perhaps have benefited from his, um, you know, uh, support uh, financially or his uh, career support are not saying, you know what, uh, he was good, he did good things for me, but I don't support any of that behavior. Like, I, I think it's just, it's really quite sad. And this is why rape culture exists is because we hush up at the particular points around it that we don't want, we don't want to imagine that our friend, neighbor, relative, guy who helped me out did this. So how do you change that though? Or, or can you? Well, I think, yeah, I think we absolutely can. I think that rape culture is learned, and so we can unlearn it. We absolutely can. I think by having people get involved and speaking out, by having people, you know, realize that that just because this person has this power does not mean he he gets to have access to women, that that's not part of the job, that we're changing the idea that as a woman you do not have to um, engage and go along with this kind of behavior um, in order to secure your career. Um, unfortunately, that's still the case in lots of places for women. So, I mean, I think we, the fact that we're talking about it, the fact that we're bringing it out of, uh, you know, under the rug where it's been swept for generations, is, I think is a very good thing. But the table has been set for this kind of thing for many, many years now. Absolutely. And again, and I'm talking on both sides of the political yes. carpet. There have been politicians, and I mean, the one, the, the first one that obviously comes to mind because it was the biggest sex scandal of our lifetimes was Bill Clinton. Yes. And I remember at the time, Gloria Steinem saying, well, he kind of gets a pass because he's been good to us. And I was like, I'm not sure that's, yeah, no, I'm that's, not sure that's helping the cause by saying, because you agree with him yeah, no, that I, he's allowed. Yeah. And I think that, and, and, on, and Republicans too, I'm not picking one side yeah, or the other. Yeah, yeah, no, I hear you. I, I think that, um, you know, I, I hope, and I like to believe that as a, as sort of a, a, a you know, feminists out there are, are, clear that it, uh, assault, violence, and any stripe by those on any side are not okay, is, is not okay, that that's, you know, full stop period, that we're not going to rationalize or excuse that behavior no matter who it comes from. And I, I certainly know that's how I feel, that's how we believe, what we believe at the Sexual Assault Centre, that regardless of who has assaulted you, we are there. We are there to believe you and support you. Um, and we know that um, we know that ab- abusers come in many packages, and that folks that you sometimes would be least like to Im- likely to imagine have done this have actually done that. I can't help but think, though, that in time, and I don't know what that time will be, uh, that he will be able to revitalize his career. Maybe I'm way off, but I just think that we're going to hear of him back in business somehow before too long. Am I wrong? Um, well, you know, I, I, I think you're, uh, that's a good point. I think that you may be correct in that we're already, I don't know if he's hired a, a 
public relations company, my guess would be likely, um, or definitely yes, I guess, um, that he's already making noises about um, possibly going into rehab, uh, going away, uh, hasn't fully come out and said, I've, you know, I've uh, done sexual assault. Um, but he talks about inappropriate behaviors and that, you know, maybe he needs to get help and he knows that he needs to, you know, he's hurt people and he needs to get help. So we may be seeing uh, him getting advice around rehabilitating his image by, you know, going, getting help and, 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 and asking for forgiveness. I think the difficulty is that true accountability means that I have to fully look myself in the mirror and say it out loud to anyone. And because this is a public case to the public, these are the things I've done and not gloss over and pretend and minimize. And unfortunately, we're not hearing at this point that because the, the behaviors he's committed are, are also sexual assault. They're against the law. So, you know, he, he may not wish to admit that. Yeah, it's very difficult. And, you know, we had a situation here in town with a, uh, not someone who committed a sexual assault, with, uh, who was trying to be hired by the football team. Yes. And you wonder, okay, where is... Is there place for a second chance? And at what point does that, and what leads to that point? And it, it, it becomes so complicated because you would like to think that before anyone would get that kind of second chance, if they're going to, that there is an acknowledgement and an, and an understanding, I suppose, that something has been done wrong and let me fix it. Yes. Oh, no. It's For me, it's pretty clear. Um, well, I guess, you know, as clear as these situations can be, that you second chances are for those who have really taken accountability. And what I mean by that, that they say, I did these things wrong. I am 100% responsible, full stop. I am getting help uh, so that I will not do this behavior again. And I take 100% responsibility. Like, that's accountability. And we don't see many examples of that, uh, particularly around the area of violence against women. We don't see that. Lenore LaCassic-Foss of the Sexual Assault Center of Hamilton Area. Thanks, as always. Oh, it was great chatting with you. Have a good night. Uh, you know, it is... This, to me, as I say, there's a lot of troubling things. If you read this story, and, and honestly, um, it's just... It, it's one of those stories that is picking up steam because... It appears that now that a number of women have come forward, that many others have felt safe, felt emboldened, felt whatever the right word is to then tell their stories. And so, again, the New York Times has another piece today that is just on and on and on. And the New Yorker has a piece out now. This is this is a mess of his own making by the sounds of it. And nothing has been proved in court, understand and there are no charges against him at this point. This is people just saying what they say happened. But at a certain point, you say, hmm, these stories, they all sound very similar. There's a lot of um, a lot of crossover here, a lot of coincidences if, if a lot of people just made up their stories by themselves and they happen to all be the similar. But again, to me, among the troubling, among the unseemly parts of this is the fact that we seem to be a lot more willing to believe and be a lot more understanding of those. And maybe this is more in the States than here. I'll grant you that, but we seem to be more willing to believe and more gentle with those who are, if they're in the political world of those who politically share our views. Harvey Weinstein was a very, very, big-time donor to the Clintons, to the Obamas. And, I mean, Saturday Night Live, which has absolutely made a resurgence of the highest order with their 
what they've done with Donald Trump over the last year or so, with him handing them plenty of ammunition, don't get me wrong, but they have absolutely shown that they are willing to go after everything with Donald Trump as they should. That's what their job is. They are a satire show on current events. They didn't touch this one. They abandoned it. And, and after the show on Saturday night, Lorne Michaels, the producer of the show, the executive producer was asked, why did you have no jokes about Harvey Weinstein? He says, it's a New York thing. Also, you know, he's very tied into the politics of most of the people on the show. So you end up somehow excusing behaviors and it's, it goes both ways. Believe me, it goes both ways, which is entirely wrong. I don't care if the person is your philosophical doppelganger when it comes to politics. If they do stuff like this, they're wrong, period, period. It's not, well, okay, but you know what? I don't want to say anything bad about him because he's a good Democrat or he's a good Republican or he's a good liberal or he's a good conservative. If they do this stuff, it's not about their politics, but we seem to be willing to make excuses or make concessions for that. Anyway, you read the stories, by the way, you might want to take a, a shower after it's kind of gross. It's kind of horrible. Not kind of, it is, uh, if, if these are true. And as I say, you read enough of them that seem very similar. You start to say, it'd be very coincidental if they all came up with the same story. Uh, but if these are true, boy, this was uh, this was a long, long string of awful behavior by someone who was a very, very powerful person in Hollywood who seemingly was able to get away with it because nobody wanted to speak up and say anything. And again, I kind of understand that to a degree, but thankfully somebody finally did. Some people finally did. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. The Toronto Maple Leafs, um, are they the best? Well, they're in first place right now, which is kind of what happens when you play three games and you win all three games. It's tough not to be in first place, at least if it's a tie for first. But man, have the Leafs look good. They are um, they are scoring. They're getting decent goaltending. What's not to like? And you know, the funny part about this is the last two years, while things were beginning to look a little better for the Leafs, because the first year, don't forget, two years ago, you had Mike Babcock. So everyone's excited about a new coach and figuring, oh, what's Mike Babcock going to do? But what happened in 2015 at the start of the hockey season? Yes, remember that was the Blue Jays. That was the Jose Bautista bat flip year. So nobody was paying any attention to the Leafs whatsoever. And then last year... The Jays get into the playoffs and they have Edwin Encarnacion hit a walk-off home run in the wild card game against Baltimore. And then they have Josh Donaldson scamper home. Remember that one? And they were looking good. Nobody was paying any attention to hockey whatsoever. Well, all of a sudden now the Jays are out and everyone's watching hockey. And it looks like the Toronto Maple Leafs are doing their part because everyone's not just watching hockey. Everyone is talking about the Toronto Maple Leafs. Correct, Bubba O'Neill, who joins us now on the phone. Have you heard, when was the last time you heard this much talk about a hockey team around here in October? Well, after three games, I'd certainly say this is uh, leading the way for, you know, certainly some time. And, you know, I, I think there was some, certainly a buzz that 
they left with the community, the hockey community, Toronto people, you know, people in the GTA after their playoff, you know, six-game run against the Washington Capitals, you know, where they pushed the President's Trophy winners to six games. So there was certainly now this whole new expectation and and uh, of where will this go, this team, this young team go now. But there was, you're absolutely right, but there was also, and we talked about it on this show, and I think I asked you this, whether or not you were cautious or whether you were optimist. And I think a lot of people were a little more cautious because yeah, it was great last year, but mm, I don't know if everyone's good. If they're going to be as good, there's going to be the sophomore slumps and all this kind of stuff. Uh, that caution seems to have been entirely discarded and thrown into the wind. People have jumped onto this thing now full bore. If they don't go 82 and 0, it's going to be a disappointment for some people. Well, I think that, you know, and, and, you know, I'm hearing Stanley Cup, I'm hearing, you know, yep. getting to the Eastern Conference final. And, and you know, and, and on that topic of what you just finished saying there, I, I agree. For me, the big step for the Raptors right now would be, uh, you know, winning a playoff series. The Leafs. And, you know, for the Leafs. Yeah. You know, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Them too. Them too. <laughs> Whoa. I just figured that somebody listening was going, wait, what? <laughs> You know, but for them to win a playoff series, and and I think that's really you know wh- where you have to, you know, concern yourself at this point right now. But uh, yeah, I think it's probably, I mean, three and zero is one thing, Scott. But I think it's what's happened here. The the three victories have come in the most unusual way, so that the first victory came in this unbelievable blowout over the Jets. The second victory at home, the home opener, so there's all kinds of excitement on a Saturday night, hockey night in Canada, blah, blah, blah. They break out to this 5-1 lead, the Rangers come back, and then they end up winning 8-5. And then last night they are outplayed by a team that's won you know, a number of Stanley Cups over the last decade, and yet they come back once again, and it's their heroic, you know, rookie of the year player that scores a goal in overtime and in the most outstanding way I'll also add too so it's just generating so much excitement I will say this with the um and not to be silly about this I mean we joke around all the time but not to be silly but I will say this when the Leafs are it's when it's close near the end of the game I am now with the skill they have on the team I am wanting the game to go into overtime so you can see some of that three on three because watching that yesterday, that was just spectacular. It was. It was. It, it actually was breathtaking, and I think just up and down and up and down, and yeah, it was great. You know, and I, I thought both teams, you know, did play a, a wide open style. You know, and the makeup of the Leafs club right now is built on speed, and that that's you know been a characteristic of Mike Babcock teams for many many years, and that also goes right into his Team Canada team. But it also has an element of toughness and checking, you know, on that third and fourth line and shutting down the other team's top players. And we're seeing this, you know, we're so used to seeing Babcock with, like I said, these Team Canada teams and Detroit clubs that, you know, always were a perennial favorite in the, in the playoffs. But right now we're seeing it in blue and white, and, it, it, and, it's, and it's almost strange in some ways to watch it. Well, it is, and, and the thing that also struck me yesterday when they went to the overtime was when it does go to three-on-three, three, so you're generally playing two forwards at a time, th- there were past years when you would have two forwards that you would put out there, and then your next two shifts, maybe three shifts, you're praying that you just don't give up a goal until those guys can get their wind again and bring them back out. They could easily run out four forward pairs and all four could have been a threat in that four on in that three on three 
And I don't think there's a lot of teams right now in the league that have that option up front. Certainly with that kind of speed. You know, even their tough guys have pretty good wheels. And that plays to, I think, the kind of hockey that, you know, Gary Bettman and, you know, people in the National Hockey League, and I think fans as well, they, they want to see this kind of hockey. And, you know, while Babcock might be pulling out his hair because of the team's <laughs> defensive lapsing at times, it's certainly exciting hockey. And, and it, it does remind me a little bit. And I think last night, even though it was a 4-3 game, it did give me memories of old 80s hockey. Yeah, no, it did. And and there's there will be times this year, despite my prediction of 82-0 and in a perfect playoff run, <laughs> uh, there will be times when they stumble, there will be times when they give up some bad goals and they lose some games, and we don't know. I mean, the big thing in this whole discussion about the Maple Leafs is it's it's smiles and chuckles right now. But an injury to Frederick Anderson or an injury to Austin Matthews or a couple other injuries, and this story changes really fast. You know, Scott, and I'm going to slightly disagree with you there. I think that's one of the things that Babcock, Lamorello, and and, and, uh, Hunter have done very well. With the exception of depth and goal, I think there's an incredible amount of depth on that team right now. So if And remember, last year they had some crazy magical season where there were virtually no injuries to that yes. team. Yep. Now, that, that case, I, I would find it hard to believe that the Leafs will go through a season uninjured like they did. They were right down on the very bottom of the man's games lost last year. So I, I, even if one of their better players, and I'm not even going to go as far as, as Matthews, but if one of their better players, top three, top three forwards, or maybe even one of their defensemen go down. I think there's good depth in this organization. Yeah, that is um, true. That is true. And, but if Matthew, if it's Matthews, it's impactful. If you, I think you're right. On the farm team, they have guys that could step in. I, I think well, they that, can live with that. That team, that Marley's team right now, I'm telling you, when I looked at the roster, I went like, that's a Calder Cup contending team right there. The only position where it really hurts is in goal. Mm. And I think that I'm not sold on Curtis McElhaney. And I know they went and got Calvin Pickard off uh, a nice young goaltender off waivers who played with the um, with the Colorado Avalanche and you know who played on a you know real bad team last year and was you know I guess drafted by the uh, Vegas Golden Knights and they put him on waivers, but he's a young goaltender and he's going to get lots of time with the Marlies. But I, that's the only I think position to me that would scare me. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. I, and and it's such an important thing in the NHL right now to have a goalie that you can count on to be really good when he's in. Because there's nothing worse than the NHL. We saw it last night. You could have, he stopped, uh, Anderson stopped a breakaway uh, when it was 2 nothing. That game is over in all likelihood if he gives up that goal. You need to have a good goalie to give you a chance. Yeah, you well, really do. Well, they're getting outshot. I mean, outshot in the early going and, you know, that game against, you know, their opener actually against Winnipeg was, you know, his brilliance in the first period is kind of what opened the door for the team to explode to a 3 nothing lead. But that all happened with three goals scored in, I think, two minutes and 38 seconds on the very back end of that first period. But for the first three quarters of that period, Winnipeg were all over the Maple Leafs, and I believe they might have had four to five uh, uh, power play opportunities, and Anderson stood on his head. The uh, the Leafs go into Montreal. It's always a great game on, on Montreal on Saturday. Now, here's your question: Would you more want to be with the Toronto Maple Leafs 
or more want to be not with the Montreal Canadiens right now when you look at their lineups? Because, man, if, if, if anything happens to Carey Price, Montreal may not win another game this year. They, I mean, they look horrible right now. Uh, you know what? And that's with Carey Price right now. Yeah. They're, I mean, for the last two seasons, maybe three, we've seen the Montreal Canadiens do very well in the standings, uh, get to the playoffs, um, and it's all on the strength of their goaltender and whatever little scoring they have. Now their scoring has diminished. You've lost P.K. Subban. You've lost Andre Markov. Now you've replaced him with Jonathan Drouin, who was an up-and-coming star that came over in free agency from the Tampa Bay Lightning, and he's going to be a good one. He's a good four. No, not free agency. Remember they traded the, oh, sorry, the big they, defenseman, the rookie defenseman. That's right, that's right. There was a trade. That's right. They picked him up in a trade. But there's just not enough there. Max Pacioretty, I guess, is the next you know sniper on that team. Even little David DeHarnay is not with that team anymore, and he no. provided a little scoring punch at former Hamilton Bulldog. There's, I mean, we're not sure about Gallagher. We're unsure about Galchenyuk. We're not even sure about the coaching. How much longer Claude Julien? He was just got there because his offense is is next to nothing. So yeah, they're relying on their goaltending for a lot for whatever success they have this year for the last couple of years. But that even increases more this year. Yeah, they were down a couple of goals in the late in the game yesterday, and I believe they pulled the goalie. And I looked in that game, and Thomas Placanic was on the ice at the end. Now, Thomas Placanic is a good two-way forward, but he is not your offensive threat. And I'm like, wait, if he's one of your six best offensive weapons, you got problems here. And, and I think they do have big problems there. I really do. Yeah, I mean, at this point now, and you're right, Thomas Placanic, again, another guy, uh, you know, many years in his growth here, right here in Hamilton, um, and has gone on to have a you know a very good career with the Montreal Canadiens, but at this point he's nothing more than a third a, th- a third line player. And and you're right if he's on if he's on the ice right now uh, during the uh, you know the dramatic points in a hockey game right now. Well, you've got to really consider what's going on with your hockey team. Uh, yeah, the, I think the, I believe the Canadians have beaten the Leafs something like 13 or 14 times in a row going into this game. I'm thinking that may change on Saturday night unless Carey Price is Carey Price. You know what, Scott? I don't even know if that's enough. I really don't. And at this point, you could see that you know that win-loss record thing flip for maybe the next couple of years because it's going to be a long time before the Habs are a contending team again. And there's and not an Austin Matthews or a Connor McDavid in the draft that even if the Habs get near the bottom and win the lottery, I'm not sure there's a guy that is a franchise changer for them. No, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, you in the discussion of who were the top Canadian clubs, I mean, Montreal for, you know, forever, you could always put Montreal in that top three category. But right now, to me, it's nothing more than Edmonton, Toronto, and Ottawa. Just before I let you go, i got to raise, i got to ask you about this. Um, one of the most ridiculous things I've heard today comes from the NFL. Uh, Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, the guy who, remember, just a week ago led his team to midfield to kneel down during the anthem, led his team and and sought out, if you watch the B-roll film, sought out the TV cameraman to come and focus on him while he kneeled down, says, anyone who disrespects the flag will not be allowed to play for the Cowboys. Yeah, it, 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 you know, you know what? It, it, and it is funny, but I don't even think it's funny anymore. I mean, it's just this, ludicrous. Where, it, where this is going to, and like to me, the message has totally been lost. 
from what Colin Kaepernick, you know, wanted to do. And players contend and continue to say to the media that this is not a protest against uh, our, our, not our, but their military or the actual flag. These are people, and I agree with them, these are proud Americans that are trying to make a statement and now, with owners like Jerry Jones, it's gone to a whole new level. And you're right that that stunt, because to me, it was nothing more than a stunt. Yep. You know, because you're right. There are, if you look at the feed of of that whole incident, you can see him seeking out the cameras. It, it, it was an absolute hoax. And you have other, you know, owners that have that have gone that route now. But now those same owners, in a matter of two weeks have changed their opinions, and I hate to say it and put it in this level because it's come right down to it, some of these owners are people that have donated millions of dollars to Donald Trump that are clear Democrats, or Republicans, sorry, and I guess with Trump's continual tweeting and phoning of owners and saying that the NFL's got to do this and they're losing viewers and don't disrespect the flag, that they're either giving in, and now you're seeing Roger Goodell, who has just called a meeting for next week to discuss what is believed to be a policy that will um, ban kneeling for players, coaches, and staff. I just, you're, you're right about everything you just said. I just, the idea that Jerry Jones, after intentionally being the guy to kneel down, is now taking the hard line against anyone who would do such a thing is is stupid beyond stupid like it i don't even know maybe his toupee is on too tight or something today it just it seems ridiculous that he would possibly think i can say this and no one's gonna think well wait weren't you the guy just a week ago but anyway you know scott the sad thing about it is that i guess the way the nfl works it's an it's an actual private club in reality in terms of business and as the owner he can have his players he is able to basically tell his players exactly what to do and what not to do. And I, you know, and I, look, we can have this discussion and it's, it's a fair discussion to have. I'm not even as blown away by the fact that an owner would want to tell his players what to do. They are his employees. Although again, we can have that discussion. It's just, wait a second. It was a week ago that you were the guy getting the attention. If you had been consistent, at least I would listen to your point of view. No. You're not even being consistent. You're just being a goofball at this point. Anyway. No, not an absolute sham. The clock is not my friend right now, Baba, but uh, always appreciate your time. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me on. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I was online this morning, and I heard this story that Sean O'Sullivan had been found safe. And, of course, it's not sad that he was found safe, What was really sad was when I followed up and I read and heard the description given out by the police of the former boxing legend. And he was a boxing legend. The missing persons bulletin that the police had put out there described him using the words vulnerable, frightened, confused. This is a man who, if you recall, and I hope you will, and if you don't know, you should go look it up. This is a guy who was arguably at one time the biggest, not just boxing star in Canada, he was at one time with Wayne Gretzky, the biggest sports personality legend in Canada. You could not turn on your television set without seeing a commercial with him at Swiss Chalet. 
He was everywhere. He filled, he helped, he and Willie DeWitt on one particular card, they helped fill Exhibition Stadium for a fight. Both of them lost. Sean O'Sullivan got kind of pounded by Simon Brown, uh, which is kind of the story of what's going on here. Uh, A few years back, a photographer from The Spectator and I went out to the Belleville area, roughly the Quinty region, and tracked Sean O'Sullivan down. We'd wondered what had been going on with him. And he was at that time teaching boxing upstairs in an abandoned toilet factory. It was winter. They had a stove or something going for heat. He was instructing boxing. And he was showing some signs, as we know he had, of some slurred speech and of some health issues. But now he's vulnerable, frightened, and confused. He's just 55 years old. 55 years old. And the whole point of this was, I'm a guy, I like watching boxing. I like the sport of boxing. I enjoy a good fight. I enjoy UFC fights at times. But I'm finding it harder and harder to match when I hear stories like this, the the result with the action itself. Well, a guy who I wanted to bring on here, because he is one of the great spokesman for the sport of boxing. He's a guy who he's been a Golden Gloves champion a bunch of times. He, I believe he sparred with George Chevalo. He is in the Canadian Boxing Hall of Fame. He's a guy who's been a champion for this sport, literally a champion in and outside the ring. Spider Jones joins us now. Spider, how are you tonight? Hey, Scott. How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm wondering if you share any of these kind of conflicting feelings when you hear stories like this, that you love the sport, but you have a hard time when you see what the sport does to some people. Absolutely, you're right. Uh, 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 first of all, with uh, Sean O'Sullivan, uh, I didn't know he was missing until I got a an email from a friend of mine, uh, Joe Warmington, who writes for the Toronto Sun. And he asked me what I thought about uh, Sean missing. I didn't know at the moment, but uh, I certainly was concerned right away, and I started asking around, and, and then I put it up on my Facebook, and uh, so many calls, I mean, so many posts from people coming in uh, who were very, very much concerned about Sean, because uh, I've known him since he was about 14 years old when he began training out of the uh, uh, Cabbage Town Boxing Club in Toronto under the tutelage of uh, of uh, uh, Peter Wiley. And, uh, you know, he, he's a very, very likable, uh, like he was a very likable young man, humble as could be, you know, uh, just a blue-collar kid. His father worked for the uh, TTC and 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 of course he captured the imagination of the public when he the first time was when he won the uh uh the light middleweight world championship he won a gold in that and he had those wars with uh the, the kids uh, Martinez uh, Armando Martinez a kid from Cuba they fought twice and he just they were just wars so you know and 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 I the last time I ran across Sean was at a fight in Mississauga a couple of years back, but I had been in contact with him on many occasions because when we started a boxer size, he was actually hired as one of the boxing instructors. But uh, even back then, you could see that he had suffered, uh, I think, a lot of brain damage, uh, pugilistic d- dementia, we call it, from from so many wars in the ring. It was kind of very, very sad to see that happen, but uh, not just him, other fighters. Uh, that I that I admired, like Jerry Quarry, and of course uh, a former world light heavyweight champion uh, um, Billy Kahn, and then of course the, the famous, the most famous of them all, Muhammad Ali. So 
my sort of, uh, although I'm a fight fan and the game is not near as exciting as it was, we are much more educated on, on and what concussions and, 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 and the brain damage that is, uh, you know, re- related to the sport. And we, the irony of it is that the guys that we we put up on a higher pedestal in the sport of boxing, by and large, are the guys who are willing to go into the middle of the ring and go toe-to-toe, and as you describe it, turn it into a war. We don't as much anymore, it seems, with most of the guys. If you are a guy who tap, 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 and score points and move away, that guy isn't as exciting to us. And 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 the irony is, as a, of that is that those are the guys who are taking the most punches and taking the most punishment. You're absolutely right. Look at it. Smoking Joe Frazier, I mean... This guy fought Ali three times. They were all wars, and he won the first fight and, and made, made it very close in the second and third fights because of his sheer, relentless uh, uh, fighting style. He just stayed on you through a lot of punches, but in return, he suffered tremendous damage. Uh, and, 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 and most fighters that, that, that take that kind of, uh, uh, those kind of poundings Scott, I got to tell you, Rock Marciano is another one. They retired early. Rocky retired early because he knew it was coming. You could see it coming. Their careers are like that. It's just that, that damage. And we know so much about concussions. Problem is, often a fighter gets knocked down. He's already concussed. He gets back up and into the fight. They have that. They have that. 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 Uh, that. Power, not that power so much as, 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 as they want to win, that will to win. Ali had it. They never want to say no. They never want to give up. They want to please, please the, the audience. But we're not taking the blows like they are. I mean, I took some blows, but not like those, those guys. And, and, and I can tell you, you can see the brain damage. It's, it's, uh, it's terrible. So when I, but I wasn't surprised when I heard about him being confused and, and dazed and wandering away in and, and that short lost memory. I know guys that I sat next to that, at the Boxing Hall of Fame dinners, and, and one of them, uh, Billy Kahn, who was a great fighter, he almost beat Joe Lewis at one time. He said, what am I doing here? There, you, you, you hear the slur in their voices and, and, and the confusion. And it breaks your heart. And I know you still love the sport, and I love watching the sport. And again, though, I'm finding it harder and harder when we now know, as you said, Spider, we know now about some of the stuff that's being done. I'm finding it harder and harder to tune in and watch, even though I do enjoy a, a good fight. How do you, I mean, do you have the same struggle with that? Do you now look at it sometimes and you see two guys wailing away on each other and go, oh, this is not what I used to think about it? Very much so. I, I still do a lot of, uh, 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 boxing uh, is an MC and uh, do some journalistic work, and and so I often say, what the hell am I doing here? I, I see these young fighters and they they just want that they want that 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 fame and they want to they want that fortune they love that adulation they call it you know the roar of the crowd mm. and at a young age like that you you feel that invincibility you never look ahead. What's it going to be like when I'm 40 or when I'm 50 or when I'm 60 when now I'm going into old age and I, I don't have uh, the mental capacity, uh, my mind is not the same, which, 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 which really interferes with your motor skills. It, it's, 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 it's terrible. Listen, to be honest with you, Scott, it's not what it used to be anyhow. I grew up in a time when boxing was, was number one, when you had Tommy Hearns and Sugar Ray Leonard, Muhammad Ali, Marvin Hagler, Roberto Duran, Alexis Arguello, 
Aaron the Hawk Pryor, all these great fighters. And I think the last of the fighters that even excited me was Mike Tyson. To be honest with you, I find it boring. I don't follow boxing nearly as much as I used to. And, and the fact that there, there are very few fighters, uh, more of them today than ever, are retiring with money, as Sugar Ray Leonard did and as Oscar de la Hoya. But there's still so many of them that uh, that are exploited by everyone around them. They're a meal ticket. Not only are they, uh, they, they they're suffering dementia, they're broke, and they're living, they're living in poverty. Mm. And I mean widespread poverty. So yes, so many things about, about the sport bother me now. And I would be remiss if I didn't bring it up. Well, and it is very often. We had uh, a local uh, boxing coach on here, an, an amateur coach, Vinny Ryan, who's a great guy from the Hamilton Absolutely. area. Uh, you probably know Vinny. Yeah. Um, and he was telling us many of the people who walk in the door of his boxing club here are either immigrants or lower income people. And for many of them, they do look at look at a guy like Floyd Mayweather and you say, man, he made what, $380 million. If I can be that one guy that puts it all together, I may not make $380 million, but even if I make a million bucks in a fight. And so it's a, it's a way to escape. And But as you say, on the path to that one in 10,000 people, there is a trough of littered bodies of people who didn't make it, who never made money, and now they're beat up. And they were used, many of them, I'll tell you another thing, Scott, many of the, uh, the, the fights you see, these guys left their fight in the gym because sparring sessions it can be like wars. And this is long before you climb in a ring to fight for a title where you're going 12 rounds. You have already fired thousands of rounds and many of them wars. Look, Sean O'Sullivan, personally to me, blew it. Blew it. I mean, he was shot as, a, as an amateur. When he came into the, the professional ranks, he had 11 fights, and they were, they were really, he wasn't tested well. And then he tossed him in against Simon Brown, and I predicted... George Chevelle and I both predicted on CBC that uh, uh, O'Sullivan was very vulnerable to a right hand, and he, we didn't think he could last, and he didn't. He got knocked out in the second round. He made a comeback. He fought four or five uh, fighters that weren't were, that were, were were less than uh, you know that, that we would call them tomato cans, and and then he and then he fought a kid named Donovan Boucher, an ex barring mm-hmm. partner, pretty good fighter, but Boucher knocked him out in the second round. He retired and then came back. And the people that supported him when he came back actually didn't want him to come back. But he said, if you don't do it, I will get it somewhere else. So what he does next is he gets he gets passed by the Ontario Boxing uh, Commissioner. And I was surprised that he could be because, to me, he was already suffering from pugilistic dementia. Then he gets back in the ring and he gets uh, he gets he gets beat up bad again and finally retires. But by now he's suffering from from brain damage and and you it's just so evident and and here's a here's a beautiful young man i knew him from the time he was young a humble a, a warrior a, a kid that would would fight king kong and and i mean he, he but he had over 100 amateur fights and every one of them was a war so by the time he turned pro they gave him 11 stiffs and then sugar ray leonard and 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 the people that ran him they they moved him very quickly up against uh, simon brown who was a power puncher who'd only lost one out of 26 fights i remember that fight i remember it vividly watching it on tv and it was at the x and uh if i recall correctly and willie dewitt was on the same card and both those guys lost and both lost badly 
when they both lost badly, Willie DeWitt uh, 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 fought a year later. I, I fought against a guy named Smoking Burt Cooper. Yep. I still remember him getting laid out. Willie's did well, though. Willie's, Willie's, Willie's actually a lawyer, a corporate lawyer. He's a judge now, by the way. Really? Well, he Willie got DeWitt out in time. He did very well. He left the game. Uh, he didn't suffer the same kind of... Uh, 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 the same kind of damage that Sean is, and anybody that would deny deny that are lying in their heart. He suffered this damage from the way he sparred, the way he fought. He was a courageous fighter, but it was a brutal sport. And 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 and, and Sean could punch, and he and, and and he had a lot of heart, but he wasn't much on defense. Whereas you see. Uh, Mayweather, this guy is probably the best defensive fighter in 50 years, so you couldn't hit him with a handful of rice. I mean, not hard. So that, that, that that's the difference. Some guys retire from the game intact, as Sugar Ray Leonard did. Uh, you know, and even guys like Duran, you talk to them. They're not, they didn't suffer from that kind of dimension. Yet Muhammad Ali may be the greatest heavyweight of all time, but he had uh, Parkinson's syndrome, which, by the way, is caused by excessive blows. And you, it, I mean, it is, there are people who say, and I, I tend to believe them, that there are people who are more susceptible. So if you're someone who is, I mean, there are people who walk away from boxing and they, they seem, as you say, pretty clear headed. And it's probably inexplicable why person A gets to do that and why person B doesn't. But that's the case. We only have a minute or two left here, Spider. But what you mentioned about the, when he, when Sean O'Sullivan, you believe when he was going pro that he was already uh, beginning to be worn down. What role, what responsibility do the people who license fighters then have to, to basically protect fighters from themselves? Well, you know, they, they, they can have a role and some people do. I remember uh, Yank Durham throwing in a towel with Joe Frazier on a couple occasions. He said, that's enough. I've had enough. Uh, uh, another one that did that was, was, was uh, Emmanuel Stewart. Uh, but uh, O'Shaughnessy Sullivan was a very proud young man, and I think even if Peter wanted to, and they were very close, Peter Wiley, his trainer, uh, 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 couldn't control him. He wanted to do it. You're with me or you're against me. Because Sean's a very proud man like that. But I'll give you one fast example before you go. George Chevello, uh 97 fights, never got knocked down, fought all kinds of wars. Yeah, he's articulate as can be. Yep. Yeah, and I mean, the, and he had. I mean, I believe that George Chavallo, his forehead might actually be made of granite. Well, um, you look at the size of his head, the size of his neck, and you'll see. There's a picture of him and I together on my Facebook, where I'm. My head's about half the size of his, <laughs> and I sparred with him, and he's as strong as a bull. But the, he's unique. Very few people. Uh, I've never seen a guy so articulate so well for going through so many fights. I got one more thing for you, because there was a study, or a, 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 it was released a couple of weeks ago, that Boston University has now come up, and it was mostly for football, but they believe they've come up with a way now to determine whether football players have CTE before they are dead, because all the studies to this point have been on brains of cadavers. Now they're saying, we may be able to test and see if you have that kind of brain damage while you're still alive, which would then allow somebody, if you're a football player and you know that it's coming, you can say, okay, you know what, I'm getting out while the getting is good. Would this be a good, if this is true, if this study was workable, should they be putting every boxer through this before they get into the ring to say, look, uh, you're clean, you're able to fight, or man, look at your brain, you should not be doing this. Would that be a good thing for fighters, or would they just ignore it because they want to get in anyway? I think most fighters 
feel they're invincible. They would ignore it because many of the fighters, most of the fighters come out of the projects. They come out of uh, uh, low-income families. They come out of the projects. Listen, uh, they're going to take their shot. Uh, we gamble. That's a natural. Uh, it's a given with them. They gamble. I don't think, uh, unless it is... Uh, uh, is sanctioned by the different boxing, uh, the, the different boxing bodies. The problem is most of these people, most of the waters are full of sharks and parasites and, and barracudas, and they could care less. It's all about the money. But for the, I, I would go along with that very quickly. Spider Jones, sir, I appreciate your time tonight. Great job. Pleasure. Always nice talking to you, Scott. Anytime. Th- thank you, Spider. That is a Spider Jones, a guy who knows the world of boxing. You've heard him. Before I think we've had him on here before, but I can't remember. I was talking to him today. I said, have we had you on? And I, I, I think we have. But that last line is the part that's so difficult. You could offer a lot of guys. And we've talked about to football players about this. We've talked to many guys. Rob Hitchcock, Mike Morielli. We've talked to other guys on this show. If you are a football player and you knew, if someone said to you, I've got a 95% chance that you're going to have brain damage when you retire, both those guys and others have said, I still have signed my pro contract. And if it's a boxer, I'm still going to go in the ring. Look, if I win this fight, then I get person X. And if I beat that guy, now I'm into big money. Well, that's the risk. Uh, I, as I say, I like watching box. A good fight, a great fight is exciting. It's it's. Perhaps I shouldn't be admitting that I like watching boxing anymore, but I, I still enjoy a good boxing match, but it has become, especially with this today, with Sean O'Sullivan, with this story. Now, thankfully, he was found, but it, to me, this one suddenly made it harder to say, I want to sit down and watch a boxing match when you see people like this, who was a, who is a good guy, who was a smart guy, Hopefully still is. I, you know, I don't know, but it becomes much more difficult to reconcile the sport with what the sport to some people does. Not everybody leaves boxing beaten up. Not everybody does. Floyd Mayweather has billions of dollars and he's hardly ever been hit. If that's, if look, if you could do that, do that, but there's only one of him. Most guys, as Spider said, the sparring alone takes a toll. Before you even get to the fight, you are a pounded on piece of meat and your head has been banged around. It's, I just find it harder and harder. I want to not, I want to be able to watch it and and not have that thought of, oh man, what's this doing to that guy's brain? But we're reaching the point where I'm finding it very difficult to do that. And that saddens me, and yet at the same time, it's reality, and you can't just ignore it. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.